You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Victorian preacher and author George MacDonald has, especially among Christian readers, a serious reputation, both for his seriously meditative fantasy novels, beloved to C.S. Lewis and others, and his seriously moralizing realistic novels, beloved of Oswald Chambers and others, MacDonald has earned a reputation as a high-minded and imaginative Christian thinker. However, Daniel Gableman argues that all this focus on the serious misses the point, that there is a lightness at the heart of MacDonald's work that is best seen not in his novels, but in his fairy tales. Today, on Christian Humanist Profiles, we'll be talking with Daniel Gableman about his book, George MacDonald, Divine Carelessness and Fairy Tale Levity. Welcome, listeners, to this Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm David Grubbs. I'm the interviewer today. And with me is uh, Daniel Gableman, author of George MacDonald, Divine Carelessness and Fairy Tale Levity. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, sir. Thank you very much, David. Well, uh, first, uh, I suppose I should ask for uh, a brief introduction of uh, where you who you are and where your work, because this took a little bit of coordinating. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, well, I, I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews uh, up in Scotland and um, at the Institute for Theology, Imagination and the Arts. And while I was there, um, I met my wife, who was also studying in the Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts, and she's English, so I got stuck in um, in the UK. <laughs> um, and so now we live on the south coast of England in East Sussex, right near um, where the Battle of Hastings. Actually, we can sort of see where the Battle of Hastings took place from our house, and um, in that sort of territory. And I teach English at um, a school called Eastbourne College here on the south coast. Um, so that's how I ended up here. Um, originally from Colorado, um, so I'm a long way from where I started out. <laughs> well, I'm speaking to you from Kansas, which is just slightly to air, uh, slightly east of where you're from. So, yes, driven through many a time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what Kansas is for: driving through to get to Colorado. I can't say I stopped many times, but I did drive through a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll turn to our book. Uh, before we get into the matter of the book, though, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit of biography, because for many folks, their introduction to George MacDonald comes through uh, biography, especially C.S. Lewis's story of first reading MacDonald uh, that he tells in his Surprise by Joy. So what's your How I Found George MacDonald story? Well, I suppose in, in many ways it's similar um, in that I first heard about MacDonald through Lewis. Um, I obviously, well, I, I grew up reading Narnia and that sort of stuff, um, and I don't remember which book specifically. I I probably heard about MacDonald first in The Great Divorce, because uh, I think I read that before Surprised by Joy, but um, in various places I'm, I, I heard MacDonald mentioned. Uh, I don't, it didn't really sort of click in my brain um, until one day when I was in a bookshop, a used bookshop at, um, 
when I was in, at um, college in Virginia, and it was sort of a ritual of a friend of mine and a few friends to go to this used bookshop and hunt for old treasures and find um, good things to read. And I encountered a book of McDonald's fairy tales, actually. Hmm. Um, and so that was the first thing that I, I discovered was the, the Penguin edition of George McDonald's fairy tales. Um, and I, I knew the name. I mean, I was interested in fairy tales anyway, but um, I knew the name through McDonald, although I didn't know anything about McDonald when I picked the book up. Um, so, so actually, my first reading experience was the fairy tales. Um, and then I went into other aspects of McDonald later on. Um, so that's, I suppose, my initial encounter with McDonald. But yeah, I, in, in a lot of ways, very similar to 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 many people in terms of I heard the name and was introduced to, um, you know, the idea that McDonald might be somebody I was interested in was through Lewis. I, I could keep going, but um, that's sort of the basic outline of it. All right, which makes uh, your opening move in your book a little bit ironic because your claim, as 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 I first read it, and when I first read it, I was a little a little bit aghast because uh, I, I met I met McDonald through Lewis, but my first novel was Fantasties. Um, your opening move is that McDonald has been fundamentally misunderstood or misrepresented, and it's partly C.S. Lewis's fault. And given how high Lewis's regard was for McDonald, that was a little hard for me to swallow. So where did Lewis, and I guess Tolkien too, get him wrong? I, I think what I'd want to emphasize is not that they got him wrong, um, but that their reading experience was, as everyone's reading experience is, sort of shaped by their own lives and their own encounters and their own engagements with, with, with texts. And, um, and, and so I, I wouldn't want to say, and I, and I, and, you know, I, 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 I try not to sort of say that Lewis was wrong, um, except in the, in this sense that the way that he was then presented to the world, like I think Lewis himself, I think had a very rich and deep understanding of MacDonald that comes out a lot more in the letters and, uh, of Lewis, mm. but Lewis uses MacDonald in his, um, uh, works of fiction and nonfiction in a particular way um, that I think was, um, you know, that w was intentional, but also slightly just shaped by Lewis's own reading experience of MacDonald. So, so Lewis, you know, famously, obviously found Fantasties as his first novel in 1916, when um, um, actually not too far from where I am now, um, but um, on the book Skulls of Leatherhead, but it was also just a few months before he was about to go to war, um, in you know, right in the middle of World War One, mm. and it's it's Lewis sort of also as a teenager, you know, as a teenager on that sort of threshold of going from child to adult, um, and that's a very that's a time that's very filled with fear and anxiety and um, worry and all those sorts of things and. And I think his experience of reading Fantasties is, is connected with, with that particular moment in his life um, to some extent. And then when he writes about MacDonald, he, it, it, it's again very much connected with similar sorts of times and experiences. So A Great Divorce comes out during World War II, 
Um, and he does the anthology for McDonald also shortly thereafter. I think it might also have been during, actually during the, the war as well. Um, obviously surprised by Joyce a bit later, but it's recounting his, his, his time. So the, the fact that every time he, he experiences or, 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 or recalls it, it is in this very intense, serious moment in his life and in the life of the world, um, I think affects the way that we now understand and read MacDonald as a, is, is, is a long way of, of, of getting at some of what you're, you're, you're getting at, but I, I don't, I don't think that it's wrong. And I, and I, and I, and I think that, um, it is an important aspect of MacDonald, um, mm. this is understanding of it, but I think it, it does overlook or neglect other aspects of MacDonald, which I try to draw out a bit more in my book. Mm. So instead of uh, instead of the more s- solemn view um, that you're, you're right, C.S. C.S. Lewis doesn't um, uniformly uh, present, but certainly McDonald's role in, in uh, the Great Divorce, as you mentioned, is is a very a very solemn kind of role. He's <laughs> his 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 Beatrice or his Virgil in the afterlife, whichever you prefer. Uh, a bit of both, given the nature of the great divorce. Um, but instead of following C.S. Lewis on this, uh, Chesterton seemed to be more your 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 guiding light, at least initially. I think one of the ways that you could look at my book is is a sort of Chestertonian reading of MacDonald, mm. uh, and. I think what one of the, you know, you could explain that in, in various different ways, but what Chesterton, um, and you could, you could point to Chesterton's reading experience instead of, instead of encountering MacDonald as a teenager about to go to war, um, Chesterton read MacDonald as, as a child, um, um, potentially his parents read it to him, um, but his first encounter was probably, um, the princess and the goblin or, um, or some of the fairy tales. And so it was, it was a very different reading experience that, um, probably therefore shaped a lot of how Chesterton understood and viewed MacDonald. Um, but also obviously the, the, the differences in terms of Chesterton's outlook on life and his, his own project, um, aesthetic and journalistic project was, was very much one of, um, uh, I guess lightness and and using humor and jokes and um, uh, turning things on their head to try and get people to think about things from a different perspective. That um, that Lewis I think does employ at, at times, but it's not his his typical way of way of operating. So um, so in that sense, Chesterton focuses a lot more on the fairy tales and and the fairy tale spirit and an atmosphere that both comes through, obviously, most specifically in the fairy tales, but then I would argue imbues a lot of most of all of the rest of MacDonald's works. Hmm. Now, given the... Uh, and and I have... Well, I have read some of the realistic novels, though, in the uh, the, the American rewrite editions. I, I, I'm afraid I, I haven't yet been able to, to, to fathom the depths of the Doric accent. <laughs> uh, the that dialogue, but they are 
quite serious and quite uh, homiletic, which I, I always assumed that was just the taste that Victorians had in novels. Um, one of the one of your moves, and especially in the second half of the book, is to talk about the idea of seriousness or solemnity um, in in the Victorian era. So, where is McDonald situated in in that discussion? Yeah, um, I, I discuss how seriousness, and, and I should maybe say before we go into that too much that um, when we, uh, one of the big problems that I had in, in sort of talking about um, seriousness is the fact that it's such an ambiguous word that can mean many different things in different contexts. Um, and so it can mean on the one hand sort of being really sincere about something it can mean being really solemn about something um mm-hmm. it could actually mean being very uh pursuing something wholeheartedly um uh, so so there's all sorts of different meanings wrapped up with that word which made it, which makes it somewhat difficult to talk about um but i guess in terms of victorians what i was trying to get at was their um on the one hand, they're, they're feeling that seriousness in terms of speaking rationally and and earnestly about things and maybe in a very straightforward sort of way was the, the best or the better way of, of speaking and writing and communicating um, than any anything that was light or playful or um, in any other way. Um, having multiple meanings or, 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 or different interpretations. Um, so I guess on the one hand, you get the, 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 the real uh, seriousness of people like Matthew Arnold and, um, and maybe in terms of novelists like George Eliot, um, who, who seem to advocate realism as the best mode of, of thinking and writing, um, and communicating the truth about the world. And that if you're not doing it through the, the medium of, of realism, that somehow you're, you're not, you're not quite as good. You're not, you're not doing things as, um, accurately and as truthfully as you could otherwise. So you have, you have that on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, you have, um, people like, um, Oscar Wilde and Lewis Carroll um, and lots of other people. And there's lots of humorists at the, in, in the Victorian period. It was actually a very, it was very rich in humor, mm. but most of most Victorians, you know, um, saw that as, as sort of uh, a, a vacation or in some sense, less significant, less truthful, less real than, than the, um, the realistic straightforward mode of communicating. Um, and I guess I would see McDonald as trying to mediate between those two in some sense and not necessarily, he's, he's, cause I, he's not as, um, uh, obviously and clearly, uh, just joking and, and even bordering on trivial at times like Oscar Wilde can be. But on the other hand, he's not, I don't think that at, at his core, he's as um, sort of 
fearful and um, earnest and worried as um, as a lot of the the realist novelists um, at the time seemed to be about the world, or or Thomas Carlyle, or or somebody like that who was um, seemed just very fearful and anxious about everything that was going on in the world at the time. MacDonald had a uh, there was a there was a real fearlessness about MacDonald's approach to um, to life and to a lot of his, his, his writing. A big part of that coming from his, uh, his conviction that, uh, of, of God as father. So that, uh, so that God, God can be trusted and, uh, such things as we endure can be viewed, not, not merely as random sufferings or as, uh, as some kind of rigorous punishment, but as a, 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 a shaping of us. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think on the yeah. So you could you could look at why why were the Victorians serious? On the one hand, um, there was the all the challenges from um, science in terms of Darwinianism and, and so forth uh, that led to a crisis of faith, you might, you might say with a lot of them that then meant that there was an absence of God or God is somehow removed from the picture and, and left people feeling like orphans, um, uh, fatherless in that sense. And so alone in the world. And, and that made a lot of people very anxious and, and worried about their lives and their existence. Um, and then, on the other hand, on the, on the, the more obviously Christian, the people who weren't were, we're, we're also very anxious about this, the developments, those, those, those other developments and sort of became very defensive probably about their faith, um, or drew more heavily on, on more Calvinistic views of God as more distant, um, and not as a close personal father sort of figure. And, and, and that's what MacDonald, as you rightly say, focuses heavily upon is that concept of God as father and therefore us as children. Um, so all humanity as children and, and thinking through that idea of the childlike. So if God is father, then that means that we are um, children and, and taking out all those attributes of what it means to be a child, what it means to be childlike. And that, yeah, one of the main ones being trust and this fearlessness of the world as a result of the fact that there is a loving father in it. Hmm. Well, there's simply no way that, uh, unless you just wanted to sit here for the next eight hours and recite your book. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know that we necessarily want to talk through the whole book either and remove our <laughs> listeners need to read it for themselves because dear listeners, you really ought to. It's good. Um, also, side note, you have really attractive cover art. <laughs> yes, I, I I agree. It was it was I I had nothing to do with it, but it was done extremely well. Yeah, this is this is one of the more attractive academic books I've ever seen, and I, I got it in the mail, and I, I thought that's that is just a beautiful color. The, the little, well, you can't see this, listeners, but a little. Uh, Arthur Rackham fairy illustrations and it's it's beautiful. Anyway, yeah, I was very impressed when I received it as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, go read it for yourself, listeners. Um, but keep listening. Uh, 
I, I do want to give folks a sense of really the wide-ranging complexity of your project because you take this in so many different directions. I mean, moving from this from this idea of recovering the childlike as in some way getting us in touch with, with one of the most important things um, and fairy tales as a medium to do that, but then you break it down into what you call these modalities of levity. Um, so I, I guess the best thing that I can do is say pick a modality and kind of trace that thread through as far as you care to go. Um, I'll let you spoil your project as much as you want, but I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> um, yeah. So in, in some ways, obviously my, the book starts unexpectedly from which you might think a book on McDonald's would do in that it goes in, it doesn't talk about McDonald for the first 70 pages or something like that. Um, but that was, that was it was a very intentional sort of decision to do that because I felt like I couldn't start talking about something um, you know this concept of of, of levity without um, trying to, to to show it elsewhere first and 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 to to get people to understand um, what it was that I was exploring and how this wasn't just wasn't just an idea that was in McDonald but was 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 something that was um, also within uh, the history of, of Christian thought and literature in uh, Western literature as well. So um, which one? So uh, which one should I trace? Um, <laughs> I suppose... Uh, Maybe so. Uh, there's 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 six of them that I that I talk about, and I and I pair them with each other. So the pairings are ecstasy and folly, vanity, and play, and carnival and Sabbath. Um, and I partially did that for space reasons because I needed to condense it into a manageable thing that didn't go off too far. But I also did it because um, each of each of those two. Um, modalities as I call them kind of balance each other in, mm. in, in interesting ways. Um, <clears throat> so maybe taking carnival and Sabbath is, is as, as a pair that's maybe slightly more accessible. Um, uh, the main idea that I was getting at was this concept of alternate, uh, modes of time so that, the modern world, I think, is very much um, constructed on the idea that time is uniform. Time, and that's you know, it's even the the definition of secular. Secular is is just a um, a word for um, uh, for for an age or, or, or a time. So our, our concept of of the secular is is very much to do with with an understanding how we experience time. Um, and so with Carnival and Sabbath, what I sort of look at and get at are these <clears throat> two experience of, experiences of time that, that Christian, um, Christians have talked about and focused on that are somehow um, connected to different experiences of time and to potentially, therefore, to... Um, um, other ways um, of um, understanding the world and understanding spirituality and and faith and so forth. Um, 
so with carnival, for instance, carnival is um, is obviously the feast of um, the feast of the flesh, um, uh, farewell to the flesh, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, comes before um, before fasts. So obviously before Lent um, is is the main is the main one. But in medieval times, there were several different times of carnival, um, and and the, and the idea during carnival was not only are you um, getting using up all your extra meat and so forth, so your house is empty of, of that um, before Lent, but um, it's also it's also an opportunity, um, or it's a it's a time of slightly anarchic time when um, the rules are um, are are more flexible and um, the world is turned upside down so that. Uh, the king is 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 you're allowed to mock the king and you're allowed to mock the bishops and all the the, the rulers and the, the the powers and authorities and the fools or the or the the low people are, are elevated and they are, are made king for the day or whatever um, and what I was trying to show through that is is how that was a way for the for people to both take a holiday in a sense from the seriousness of life. Um, also renew themselves, I think, in certain ways for um, for their lives and um, and to give them some ability to to criticize and to um, see the world in new in, in all its possible um, in all its new possibilities and of all all the the potential options out there and therefore see maybe oh maybe the world doesn't have to be this way maybe we can um change our lives and um and so forth um and sabbath i i think of course you know a lot of people's fear with with carnival is that it gets lawless and um maybe leads to too much debauchery or something um but um i think sabbath is is in some ways very similar in terms of its um it's supposed to be a alternative moment of time that renews and restores and also provides some sort of bastion or safe haven against the, the, the secular world, the, the normal ordinary um, experience of life and, and time and reality um, that, that, that from which the, the joy and the rest and all those things that come through um, in that experience of the Sabbath, um, revitalize somebody to go back out into the world as a changed, transformed, renewed individual. Um, so I don't know that's that's a that's a shot at explaining one of them uh, or two of them, I guess. How does that carry on into uh, into McDonald's fairy tales? How does how does uh, Sabbath time become once upon a time? I I think. What I try and show is, is first of all, how um, McDonald very intentionally set his fairy tales within an alternative experience of time. Um, and so, um, so for example, he, um, he, he, he told most of them um, or put them mostly in, into Christmas um, settings um, and sort of the the feast and festival of Christmas in that sense, um, and I think it he was pointing to how he wanted them to be experienced 
and received by by doing so. Um, and so a fairy tale in that sense is in McDonald's understanding of things, I think a bit like, like a Sabbath rest or a moment of, of calm that breaks, interrupts the, the normal everyday mundane experience of, of time and of, of reality. Um, but it's not a, you know, I think that one of the common criticisms of fairy tales is that they are escapes in some sense or that they, um, take us away from reality. But I think McDonald would say, well, Yes, in a sense, that's that's very true. But that is that is an important part of then going back into reality, um, having that that space to imagine the possible, imagine um, what could be, and to then allow that the imagination of of that possibility to take root and transform um, into the real. Um, he's got a nice quotation where he says something like, um, may not the possible become the real. And, and the idea that imagination could in some sense, um, not could, but that, that was his view of the imagination that the only way that anything was ever changed, anything was ever transformed was through the power of the imagination. And, um, it, it had to be imagined first before it could actually, um, come into, into being. Um, and so fairy tales, I think are that time, they're that that Sabbath or that break. Um, and they also have the carnival like aspects, obviously, because they, um, they have, they have, um, they turn things on their head. They invert maybe normal expectations of how reality works. They obviously sometimes include magic and, um, strange creatures and, and all these things that we wouldn't expect. Um, but that's part of the breaking of our normal lenses of how we, we see reality. Um, so, yeah, so that's a, 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 a bit of how it goes into it. But it, it is that getting at there, there are different ways of experiencing time and they are still good and they are still really significant, important ways of experiencing time. Mm. And they're not in, invalidated just because they happen to have fairy, fairies in them or magic in them or something like that. One uh, connection that occurred to me, especially related to time, um, is... In one of my one of my favorites of McDonald's fairy tales, uh, the Day Boy and the Night Girl, um, uh, that in that story of Photogen and Nycteris, uh, how especially for uh, for both of them, the the witch alters their life, experiments with their life by altering the way that they experience time. Uh, in particular, trying to make them not aware that there are actually changes in the day-night cycle, um, and uh, and especially the way that plays out with with Nycteris as being the first to, in some way, see you know find a difference, and and the ways that she attempts to uh, figure out how time passes, you know how those cycles work. Um, would you care to say that does that fit into um, this this time project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think McDonald was very much symbolizing that, um, and um, Nycteris is, in that sense, as as the emblem of night. Um, I think. McDonald very much saw fairy tales and fantasy as 
you know, symbolically associated with, with the night. Um, and so, and, and, and you're absolutely right. She's the one who's actually much more sensitive and, um, figures things out, um, uh, better than Photogen does, who is, who is completely obsessed with the sun. And in that sense with, you could potentially say with, with the more rational, Mm -hmm. um, daytime, uh, normal ways of, 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 going and, um, and, and living and, and so forth. And he's the one who, who is terrified by the night. Um, and of course she's also, um, um, very much terrified by the day, but, um, and it's, it's, there's, there's that sense of, for McDonald, it's always about wholeness. It's always about finding a, a higher unity, a, a harmony between these two things. And that's obviously their journey is, is, is finding how, how do we find some sort of harmony between these two experiences of time? Um, obviously it's not to say that we should, we should abandon, um, the day or that we should abandon the night, but we have to figure out the best ways of, of living in and, um, utilizing both day and night. So, um, yeah. And I think Photogen is, like I said, I, I, I think she's the one who symbolizes the, the, the dream, the imaginative world, much, much more so, um, in that regard. And, and I think her story is a much more interesting story, um, in that tale. Well, it, his is mostly killing things until, yeah. <laughs> until he go, decides to stay up too late. Yeah. And then he, then he cries and, and runs away. And, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, he, he's not, he's not particularly interesting till the very, well, I guess towards the end. Yeah, she she helps make him interesting, frankly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I need to uh, uh, I need to transition to one thing because this is an important question to me. You, you, you in your own story, you first met you first met McDonald through fairy tales. I first met McDonald through Fantasties, and especially my expectations of Fantasties have been shaped by what I read in uh, Surprised by Joy. I I was looking for the kind of thing that Lewis said he found there. So you've convinced me that there is this connection between the fairy tales and MacDonald's ideas about art and theology and uh, the way the, the, the human spirit ought to develop in relationship, especially to, you know, the theological realities of life. You've convinced me of that connection, but I would like to hear about more about Fantasties, because when I read it, I read it because I need several hours of cathartic weeping, and it's for me, it's all about the the kind of purgative sadness <laughs> in that book, and the only unserious moment that I can recall in the whole thing are those terrible flower fairies in chapter three. So do I need to stop crying and learn to love the flower fairies or, or have I, am, am I taking, taking this idea too far? Um, no, I mean, I, I suppose what I would, what I would say about that. I mean, there's all sorts of things I could say about fantasies. I mean, on the one hand, I, I think, uh, I think, as I said at the beginning, I think the experience, uh, I think McDonald's, um, more complicated than any one sort of reading experience of him can, um, can dictate. Um, 
and so I think it's it's absolutely a you know I've 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 enjoyed Fantasties in exactly the same way. I I I, I reading Fantasties even though it wasn't my first reading experience with McDonald was um, in many ways one of the most profound reading experiences I had of McDonald and it, and it was very much not to do with um, uh, I guess feeling you know not, certainly not much laughter and and so forth but. Um, but I think you got at you got at something of it first of all with the the cathartic aspect because um, <clears throat> ultimately I think what is at the heart of the fairy tales and McDonald's project um, more generally is this sense of um, the weightiness of the self and the idea that the self is like ultimately the 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 biggest problem um the biggest spiritual problem is taking the self too seriously mm. uh, and and i think that's exactly what fantasties is all about um fantasties is about um uh, um a boy slash man on you know or boy about to become a man um who is who is taking himself very, very seriously. Um, and the, the, the learning process that he's going through is figuring out how, how can I die to myself? How can I let go of myself? And, um, ultimately, um, in that sense, become much, uh, much lighter and much more, uh, free from fear and, and worry and, and concern. Um, so I guess there's, there's that aspect in, in my mind and, and it's, and it's, it's sort of a, uh, it's, it's, it's an adult in one, in one sense engagement with, with the same sort of idea. Um, but the other thing I would say is, is it doesn't just have to be sort of the flower fairy kind of stuff. Um, uh, I mean, I think the flower fairies have been poo-pooed a little bit too much by people like Tolkien, but um, <laughs> they um, they they obviously do cloy a bit to um, to modern contemporary people. But um, uh, you know, there's lots of other there's lots of other at least moments I would say that are that are if not if not funny or something that are, I, I do think are. Um, uplifting and 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 um, light-hearted in in certain sense, and I think ultimately what I would say about it is that the whole thing is structured around the experience. What I think uh, around the, the experience of reading fairy tales, mm. um, and so each of the episodes. And, and I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really go into this too much, um, in, in too much depth. I do talk about fantasies and, and, and how I, I understand fantasies as uh, engaging with fairy tales. Um, but each of the episodes in, in fantasies, I think, is is sort of a fairy tale episode that Anidos is is living out in his own life, um, and you know, depending on how you look at it, you could see that as him. Uh, mirror, mirroring himself into the fairy tales mm -hmm. and experiencing the fairy tales himself 
and thereby maybe, as you say, purging uh, a, a, a part of himself that maybe he needs to learn how to, to let go of a bit more. Um, so for instance, the, and, and then the other thing I would say is, is the, the fairy, the fairy palace at the center of the story, uh, is I think also participating in a different time mode, mo modality than the rest of the, the novel, the romance, whatever you want to call it. Um, because it's, it's in the fairy, it's in the fairy palace that Anodos one somewhat loses his shadow for a, for a time, for a, a small period of time. Um, and he has this different experience, this experience of, of rest, of, mm. of, of Sabbath, of renewal. Um, you know, he has time to, to sort of do these things, to swim and to bathe and to look at art and to, um, eat nice meals and, um, do all these very relaxing, meditative, um, enjoyable things. And at, at the core of that is reading. And he goes to the fairy library from, um, for most of the day and he reads and he then reads himself into the stories. Um, and then of course, probably the most famous story is, is the story of Cosmo, mm. um, which then I would argue becomes his story in the second half of the novel. Um, he learns the same sort of process of how to, of how to love another enough to let go of himself, to sacrifice himself, um, uh, for their sake. Um, and so that not that, that, that fairy tale, then uh, that story has, 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 has become part of who he is to such an extent that he then begins to imitate it in his life and to see possibilities of changing and transforming who he is. Hmm. And you suggest that that can work for the reader as well. Well, I, I suggest that McDonald suggests it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yes, I mean, I think that's what McDonald's was, what, what he thought, or at least I think it was his experience as well. Like, um, as, as I read Fantasties, I see it as partially McDonald commenting on his own experience of, um, of reading and how stories transformed him, um, in his childhood and adolescence and, 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 and beyond that, um, his engagement with, in particular, German um, fairy tales and the writings of Novalis and um, uh, various other German romantics, I think, had a profound influence on changing who he was. So I think he's he's sort of showing his own experience with that. But yeah, he's also suggesting that that's what could happen for readers um, of his fairy tales as well. Or at least I think he hopes that's what would happen um, to readers who read his fairy tales and allowed themselves like Anodos to read themselves into the story. And so I think he structures his stories in such a way that it's easier for people to read themselves into his stories. Mm -hmm. um, and so for example, he almost always has um, a boy and a girl 
character. It's not exclusively true, but um, um, by and large, that's the case. Um, he he does people from different e- um, economic backgrounds, um, and usually the boy and the girl aren't that. I mean, like most fairy tale heroes and heroines, they're not that um, individual. Um, they're mm-hmm. fairly um, everyman sort of characters, which again makes it easier for the reader to sort of see themselves as that person in that place, in that experience. Um, and MacDonald seemed to think that that was something that creates that moment or that, that space, um, in, in time and, and space where a person could imagine being a different person, Mm. um, and see the possibilities of, of, of the world, um, around them and then act upon those and to, to change their situation. And he, he even, you know, Adela Cathcart is, is, is sort of a novel that shows his view of this. Um, in Adela Cathcart, that's exactly what they do. They tell stories to each other. Um, and in particular to this girl who's listless and has no hope in life. Um, and through storytelling, she begins to see the possibility of life and she, perks up and um, sees um, all that she could be um, and he implies that it's because of the, the stories that she's been listening to and seeing herself in hmm. yeah you you mentioned a number of his novels and Adela Cathcart is, is one that you keep coming back to because it has that that well one it's it, it is a, a frame narrative that has several fairy stories uh, fairy tales in it um, but also the, the, the narrative, the frame narrative itself is important as, you know, as, as you make the point that, uh, as a way of seeing what kinds of, a, what kinds of things fairy, fairy tales can accomplish. Um, I was, I, I would have been interested. I was, well, one, one that I would have, that, that I was kind of hoping you'd talk about more is Sir Gibby. You mentioned him a couple of times. Um, just sort of in passing, and I, I don't know why I expected to see Sir Gibby. Mainly, mainly it's because of his career as a brownie. I thought, you know, maybe maybe now Gibby qualifies as a fairy tale. But do you th- uh, do you think that uh, Sir the Sir Gibby novel can be read um, in some ways in light of these ideas? Yes, absolutely. Um, I th- and I think there are a lot of McDonald's. Um, novels that have fairy tale structures to them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not, I, I mean, on the one hand, I think that MacDonald is doing something interesting with that. On the other hand, I think that's true of a lot of novels as well. I think, I think uh, fairy tale structures are, are fairly common within, um, within novels. And, and there's lots of, in particular, Victorian novels that have a prominent fairy tale structures. So, um, uh, but MacDonald, in particular, I think uses fairy tale structures in his in his books, and and Sir Gibby, I suppose, is a is a, is a, is an excellent example of of a fairy tale structure. Obviously, it's not told in the the, the style of a fairy tale, um, and it has realistic elements and all that sort of stuff. But if you think about the characters and you think about the um, the plot line and the plot structure, um, it's it's classic fairy tale kind of stuff, um, particularly given that Sir Gibby 
is an orphan, and obviously, and one of the the standard things that, that fairy tales do is is um is get rid of the parents somehow, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and um and so Sir Gibby ends up obviously on the streets and doing all these sorts of um good deeds and so forth, um, and then obviously goes through his life and has all these different adventures and ultimately gets the girl and um and 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 so forth. So um. Absolutely, I think the structure of that is is very fairy tale like, and um, Chesterton said something exactly the same of the the Marquis of Lossy. He says essentially um, that to understand that tale, you you need to see that well, it's really a fairy tale. It's um, you you'd understand the the novel much. You understand the novel much better when you understand that it is actually um, um, structured and um understood better as a fairy tale than it might be understood as a as a realistic novel um so yes i mean I, again i obviously with, with within within a book you can only do so much and um, uh and I, and I could have you know gone on indefinitely i'm sure but um but i, I think i think also part of what i what i like to do um is is to, and I think this is what fairy tales do really well, is to leave gaps, and and some sometimes that can just be laziness, I suppose. But um, <laughs> sometimes I think gaps are excellent spaces for people to to find their own interpretations and to um, um, take it beyond the the book itself. So so in a sense, um, uh, I think I think gaps like that are important um in fairy tales and maybe even in academic books as well yeah well i i do think that you've given um mcdonald studies some i I think a perspective that's new and you've given some in your modalities you've given some conceptual framework that i think i think more more work with with more of mcdonald's corpus can be done using this book as as kind of the the jumping off point so yeah i i i guess it's better that you left gaps it leaves it leaves quests for others <laughs> um i did want to ask one more question before we uh before we wrap up which is uh that i i see how um i see how these ideas work out in george mcdonald's fairy tales particularly but the impression i get when i read mcdonald's essay the fantastic imagination is that mcdonald isn't just explaining how his own fairy tales work but he seems to think that this is something that that those ideas apply to this genre more generally um so do you think that's the case uh and if and since since your approach follows McDonald's lead, um, do other fairy tales uh, can other uh, do other fairy tales seem to be liable to, to the kinds of readings that you do with McDonald's? Um, yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, yes, I mean I, I certainly think McDonald thought there was something special about the fairy tale genre, um, and you're absolutely right. The fantastic imagination is about McDonald's understanding of the genre, um, not just about his fairy tales. And if, if anything, he's trying to um, 
not talk directly about his fairy tales. Um, uh, so I think, again, his experience of reading fairy tales, that's, it seems to be reflected in what, in what he's saying. And in that sense, I think he found um, reading fairy tales transformative and, um, and that they opened up realms of possibility and they gave him space for thinking about, oh, oh the world of the possible, not just the world of the matter of fact. Um, and so, yes, I think, um, I think absolutely you, a lot of fairy tales would be very open to that sort of interpretation. And I mean, there has been, um, I think the Grimm brothers in particular, there's been some, some good, um, books written about uh the the grim fairy tales and how um uh i think it was v wilhelm in particular saw the symbolic um, meaning of fairy tales as a very uh spiritual christian philosophical um in experience encounter and that that was something that he um, in some sense uh, structured because obviously he did um, the, the Grimm brothers although they did collect them they also wrote quite a few of them in terms of selecting what was was put in and, and how it was how it began and how it ended and so forth so um, so yeah I think the Grimm brothers would be probably a, an excellent place to look for that but yeah in general it, it would apply to a lot of fairy tales. And I think it would also, you know, it's, it's also interesting to think about there's, there's some people, um, uh, John Milbank has a good article where he talks about fictioning things and, and, and how the fairy tale genre has something that is closely related to Christianity and that, mm. and the fairy tale as a, as a genre is in some sense a, a very Christian, um, genre that is closer to, um, Christianity than, than, than maybe like the Greek myth or something along those lines. Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure I would, uh, how, how far I agree with that, but there, there is, there's certainly a sense of, um, uh, the fairy tale as, as having been structured by medieval Christendom, mm -hmm. um, and sort of, um, imbued with a lot of the atmosphere of medieval, medieval Christendom that I think inevitably affects um, the, the genre and, and therefore that you can sort of, um, see and feel and interpret those ideas out of a lot of standard fairy tales. Um, if you're, if you're sensitive to it, if you're, um, looking for that sort of thing. Well, I, I certainly found, uh, find the, the notion of reading it that way a lot more edifying than, well, years ago when I was an undergraduate and got interested in fairy tales, went to the library and everything that I could find was some some sort of a Freudian uh, rereading of them. And, uh, and I, I, I felt like I could never really look my fairy tales in the eye again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Freudian, Freudian and Marxist um, <laughs> criticism, they're, they're the most... The most obvious. I mean, one of the things I briefly talk about is, 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 is how good fairy tales are at taking criticism. Um, and, and, and well, I mean, both in terms of, 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 of literally, but also in terms of literary criticism. They, every literary critic who comes along thinks they understands um, the fairy tale genre. Um, 
definitively. And, and I think it's something interesting about the genre that it can take all of those um, readings and still keep coming up with new readings. I think there's something really amazing and, and beautiful about the fact that the, the fairy tale genre, um, I think you can read it productively in, in, in other modes as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but I think, I think reading it philosophically and theologically is an extremely rich and fruitful way of doing so. And I think a lot of the fairy tale writers, certainly of the 19th century thought so as well. Excellent. Well, I think this is about all we have time for today. And I want to thank you, sir, for uh, participating in a conversation that I've really enjoyed. And I hope our, our listeners will enjoy it as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Listeners, this has been an interview with Daniel Gableman, author of George MacDonald, Divine Carelessness and Fairy Tale Levity, a volume in Baylor University Press's excellent Making of the Christian Imagination series. I'm David Grubbs, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, a podcast from the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Zach Schmidt. Don't forget to watch for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.